5: Find Try This from The Washington Post, wherever you listen. Falling
2: in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things. And sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with once upon a time, doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. On the season finale of Crazy in Love, we're examining the infamous case of Jodi Arias. While you may think you know the story, we're taking a different approach. Joining producers Stephanie Lidecker and Jeff Shane are Jodi's former defense attorney, Kirk Nermey, who spent tons of time with the woman in question, and forensic expert, Joseph Scott Morgan, who covered the complex forensics in the case from the beginning. Episode 48, the case of the fatal beauty the shocking trial, and the attorney who lived through it. Travis Alexander had it all going for him. He was a successful entrepreneur and motivational speaker and had a bustling social life. However, he yearned to settle down with someone. In September 2006, at a conference in Las Vegas, he was introduced to a beautiful saleswoman named Jodi Arias. They had dinner and talked till four in the morning. The very day after meeting Jodi Arias, Travis emailed a friend, quote, I went from intrigued to her, to interested in her, to caring for her deeply, to realizing how lucky I would be to have her be a part of my life forever. She is amazing. It's not hard to see that whoever scores Jodi, whether it be me or someone else, is gonna win life's lotto. Despite living in different states, the relationship progressed quickly and became physical. There was just one problem. Travis was a devout Mormon and wasn't supposed to be having premarital relations. But Jodi was committed to making it work. She converted and even had Travis baptize her. However, early on in their relationship, Jodi started to exhibit some toxic behavior. She was known to go through Travis's phone, emails, and social media accounts. After five months together, Travis broke up with Jody. But just weeks later, Jody moved to Mesa, Arizona, where Travis was living. At this point, he was dating someone new, and Jody began harassing the woman, knocking on her door at all hours in the night, and even slashing her tires. Throughout all of this, Travis and Jody remained in contact physically and emotionally. Through this time, Jody was trying to move on as well, and she began dating a new guy in Utah. On June 4th, 2008, Jodi had plans to drive out to see her new boyfriend in Utah. On the way, she stopped by Travis's. There, after fooling around, Jodi stabbed Travis nearly 30 times, slit his throat, and shot him in the head. Days later, after discovering his body, the police also found a camera memory card in the washing machine. On the card were intimate photos of Travis and Jodi together, as well as grisly pictures of his dead body. It led detectives straight to Jody, and she was arrested for murder. After the arrest and leading up to the trial, her story changed several times. At first, Jody denied ever having been there. Then she said someone attacked both of them. Finally, she landed on a story, self-defense against Travis. In 2013, after a very public trial, she was found guilty of first-degree murder. Jody was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after two juries could not agree on whether to sentence her to death. Here's Stephanie.
6: Kirk, I wasn't aware that as a public defender, you basically are assigned a case and you don't really necessarily have the liberty to be able to decide if you want to stick with it or not. So how were you assigned to this case from the start?
7: Back in 2008, I was working as a deputy public defender in the death penalty unit of the public defender's office. That was a specialty unit of experienced attorneys that had gone through a great deal of training, had a a certain amount of felony cases under their belt. So my boss came down the hall and he had a very uh, familiar smirk on his face uh, and an empty file folder in his hand. And on that uh, file folder was the name Jody Arias recently days before the counsel she had had been allowed to withdraw from the case for an ethical conflict which was something that you know i was not privy to but was certainly something that meant that she was off the case and it needed to be assigned to new counsel and in 2009 i had no idea who jody Arias was and people a lot of people are shocked by that because you think oh how could you not know but think about 2009 this was four years before the trial She had been on an ABC 2020 special, Picture Perfect, had done a couple other tiny interviews, but that was about it. And as a lawyer, I didn't watch that kind of stuff because that was my life. So to me, it was just another name. And the only thing that stood out to me was the fact that this was a female, because it is a rare occasion when we have a female who murders, let alone one who is charged with the death penalty.
3: When did you first come into contact with Jody and what was your first interaction with her like? Or do you prep for a case before you meet a defendant?
7: You know, the only thing I knew uh, when that empty file came into my hand, because I didn't have the entire file because that was with the former attorney, so I couldn't review everything. And one of the things you want to do as a death penalty attorney is make sure your client knows who their counsel is, their family knows who their counsel is, that sort of thing. You want to make that contact as quick as possible. And ultimately, a defense team is made up not just of a lawyer, but it's a, of a co-counsel, of an investigator, and a mitigation specialist. So what you want to do in an introductory meeting is ultimately get as many of those people together as you can and go down and so the client has a face she, he or she can put to the name. It was a new assignment. We wanted to see her right away. My initial exposure to Jody Arias was really sitting down, finding that 2020 special online. And that was kind of my first foray into the case, that sanitized 60-minute documentary that ABC had put together. And what was her demeanor like when you first sat down with her? I always disappoint people who ask that question with my answer because it's quite normal. It was nothing out of the ordinary. You know, I think people are expecting to say, like, I was meeting a celebrity or I was going to get this sense of evil or what have you. Just that normal initial meeting with the only knowledge in my head really being what I'd seen in, in the ABC documentary
6: i also saw the abc documentary at the time so yeah if you had seen that when you met her the first time was that similar did it line up
7: yes i think so i mean when you have those initial meetings with the client facing the death penalty you're really not doing a lot of uh talking about the substance of the case right you're just you're not probing you know that there's going to be a long-term relationship no matter what when we talk about the death penalty whatever we think of the defendant they're always somebody's loved one, right? They're always somebody's son or daughter or brother or best friend or husband or wife. So you want to kind of get that connection with not only the client, but the people that are important to his or her life.
6: Yeah, that makes sense. That must be an incredibly difficult scenario to be in. I can only imagine as a parent. And then Joseph, how did you first get connected to the case?
1: Believe it or not, when I got tasked to involved in this case with the media this was actually my first foray into the media the producer at CNN it's for HLN she had googled medical examiner because they needed someone to talk about the forensics in this case because it was just so uber violence all the way through do you think you could look at these autopsy reports and and uh, take a look at it and, you know, the documents that we have. I was like, yeah, cool, I'll do it. And Can you come on down and and hop on air with us? And I began to read over the autopsy report, you know, everything to do with Travis Alexander. And I was like, holy Christmas. You know, she she really did a number on this guy. I mean, he's really carved up significantly. And what really struck me was the fact that some of the stuff, in my estimation, appeared to be post-mortem. And based on my career and things that I'd seen in the past, this was just indicative of uh, a level of anger and psychopathology that, you know, that you only rarely encounter.
6: That's interesting that you say that. So meaning post-mortem that the stab wounds and injuries still continued after it was very clear that Travis was already deceased.
1: I think there's some indication of that. But you have to keep in mind that his body, he'd been down for a while, so there was Decay it compromised a good bit, and he had been down in this closed-up apartment. So it made interpreting some of these wounds, I think, for Dr. Horn difficult, but he did a great job. The one thing that he'll never convince me otherwise is that the gunshot wound that Travis sustained, that, in my estimation, that was a post-mortem injury because there was very little hemorrhage you know, in the wound track, and there was no soot deposition. So it wasn't like it was pressed to his head. It's like the individual stood above him as he's down and fired that round into his head.
6: And as a death investigator, that's significant because that final shot, if that's the one, it seems that it points to more extra rage. Or does that mean she was so out of her mind, potentially, that she wanted to just make sure he was officially dead?
1: If you were to create a medical legal death investigation textbook and you were going to do a subsection on overkill, Jody Arias would be a subject or Travis Alexander's body rather, not her, but Travis Alexander's body would be a point of reference. The fact that it's a stab wound, stab wounds, blood and bludgeonings, strangulations to maybe a lesser degree because they're not quite as violent, but sharp force injuries and bludgeonings tend to be very, very personal. You know, when you see the images at the end, I think it was the end of the hallway down past the bathroom, uh, there's like this gigantic blood spot. I can't prove this, but it always seemed so that it would be one of those positions where he would be prone, kind of face down. And you'd have to leverage with her size. She would have to leverage by putting pressure, like with her knee in the area between his shoulder blades or mid-back pulling his head back because it looks as though it's so hyperextended, the entry does, that when you drew it back like that, then he finally bled out right there.
6: For all intents and purposes, she practically decapitated him.
1: This is a brutal, brutal, sharp force injury case. But my estimation, again, this is only my opinion, when that last photo in life was taken of him and he's in the shower and he's kind of doing the look over his shoulder, it's very haunting. It's at that moment in time where he's attacked, and he's attacked from the rear. And then he's, I think he spun, threw his hands up, and he sustained these kind of defensive, on the Palmer aspects of his hands, these kind of defensive injuries. And then he stabbed in the chest, but he exits the shower, goes, I think, to the sink, because there's contact traces of blood on the sink where it looks like his hands were supporting his body. And here he is, and he's riddled with these holes, and when you look at the sink, if folks that are listening to this will take a, uh, uh, one of the things I do with my students is talk about aspirin blood, fine aspirin blood, take an aerosol can of hairspray or something and spritz it on the on the mirror, and it comes out in these little tiny little droplets. That's what it looked like, and, it, and that's on the surface of the sink, and it would have been generated probably as a result of the lung being penetrated, and then he's hacking. He's hacking this blood up, and as he's hacking, it's coming out of his nose and his mouth, and it kind of turns into this fine spray. It was just one of those things, you know, you, you sit there and you look at it and you think, you can actually kind of see this dance of death that's going on, and it, it was horrific. I want to ask Kirk, seen that, that's hor- it's horrific. So how do you as a defense attorney
3: take that and bring that into the courtroom. I mean, I would imagine any juror hearing that would hate Jody. Like, how do you spin that or can you spin that?
7: I don't think it's a it's a matter of spin, per se, because, you know, I mean, in a death penalty case, the real goal of a death penalty attorney is to save a client's life. It's not necessarily the idea of guilt or innocence. Right. And the scenario we just heard laid out is certainly a plausible one but my biggest concern as a lawyer is i look at the legal ramifications of certain things that are byproducts of what we just heard regarding the the crime scene and a couple words that stand out are rage we heard that over and over and over again rage and the horrific nature of the crime scene this wasn't some kind of random killing off or something there was a real personal element to it right which is which is true the other thing i turn to when i when i think about this crime scene is the idea of premeditation we hear this theory that miss area steals this gun she from her parents she drives down she's got all these making all these preparations. cell phone turned off what have you but when we talk about that as an act of premeditation and she has this gun in her hand, what makes sense to a forensic expert looking at the case might be something that makes doesn't make as much sense to me or potentially a juror. Because you think about some questions that come with all of this. And, you know, we just heard a, a theory where he is stabbed first and then shot post mortem or near death why does someone bring a gun with the intent of killing drive 14 hours? She has this supposed plan under the state's theory that she is going to go there and kill Mr. Alexander. Well, she doesn't walk into the home at four in the morning, shoot Mr. Alexander and leave, right? Why does she then decide to stab first as opposed to shoot first so those are the questions when you talk about premeditation and rage that you really look at in conjunction with all the other facts each crime scene tells a different tale in each case so that's how i'm looking at the crime scene and i'm looking at that in terms of the elements of first degree murder second degree murder and manslaughter because as a death penalty attorney in my quest to save a client's life i know that A verdict of second-degree murder saves my client's life. A verdict of manslaughter saves my client's life. So I'm looking at it through those eyes. And to me, when you think about the crime scene and what have you, that rage always spoke to manslaughter as opposed to some sort of premeditation.
6: Understood. And with that theory in mind, is it possible that maybe she would not have killed Travis that night had the rest of the evening gone differently If i remember correctly they were due to go on a trip and found out that he wasn't taking her on vacation i think through his emails that she was maybe in but regardless if he had said to her we're great let's get back together was this an avoidable crime or does it feel like it was something that spontaneously maybe that rage took over and there was no turning back
7: that's the uh, million dollar question when it comes to this because you know, there is that reality out there that she comes to the house, he lets her in. We know they were watching YouTube videos at like four in the morning. We know they had a sexual encounter at about one thirty in the afternoon. I mean he's taking pictures of her nude on the bed at one thirty that afternoon. So what changed and he's he's dead approximately five thirty, we know from the photographs uh of the killing what transpired in those four hours. Travis's friends speculate that, you know, he said, hey, I'm still going to Cancun with Mimi, I believe her name was, you know, after they had sex and that was the minute of rage. But then again, that speaks to manslaughter. That's really how I'm looking at it when I put all those elements together. And certainly back in 2013, I believe that there was a strong probability that that, that's what this was. This was a manslaughter case because I have a tough time and people hate Miss and and what have you. But we look at the evidence. We look at the reality that if somebody who's going to kill someone, are they going to have sex with that person? I mean, they're going to have their potentially have their DNA. on. Are they going to allow that person to take photographs of them, right? Their fingerprints are going to be on glasses in the house and the bed, what have you, there's all kinds of possibilities. If you're going to do that and this is a plan culminated day or initiated days earlier, culminated when you get to his house. Do you hang out for 12 hours, especially when your alibi is that you're in Utah? Why do you spend 12 hours at the home, 14 hours, whatever it was, instead of just going in there, doing it, and leaving?
6: Such a good point. And so, yeah, fascinating. I guess that is the pocket of time that is unanswerable, frankly.
2: We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment.
7: From
0: BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a
1: road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
2: He says, somebody's in the house. And I
4: screamed.
2: Listen to Uncanny USA
4: wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
0: Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
4: Ah.
6: When you first met with Jody, was she optimistic about being free? What did that look like in her head best case scenario?
7: I don't think there's any optimism in a death penalty case. I mean, to me, it's a matter of mitigating tragedy. And I think having been in a courtroom where the death penalty was delivered, I sense nothing but pain. So, ultimately, you know, my job as a as a lead counsel is to try to do everything I can to save my client's life. And so There's not optimism. There's just hope that the tragedy that's already took place. And and this is a great tragedy. We shouldn't lose sight of this in any conversation that had about this case. You know, you have a young man who lost his life and and a young woman who threw hers away. And, you know, you try to do your best to mitigate that tragedy, if you will.
6: Such a fascinating job. And, you know, again, yeah, life and death work like
7: no other.
3: Can you walk us through some of what you need to consider as you're preparing for a case?
7: Well, I mean, there's loads of information that starts coming up and coming through, right? What the prior counsel had done in the year or so that she had the case. There's the police reports. There's the unsanitized uh, versions of the crime scene photographs, the stuff that, you know, ABC doesn't want to show. My goodness, it was one that really sticks with me because of its innate brutality. There's no denying the brutality of that scene. I'd never seen anything like it. And so you begin sorting through that and you begin, you know, asking questions and you begin looking at the case as it relates to those, you know, elements of those crimes. And you're also looking at it because it's a death penalty case and A jury is going to be ultimately making the decision between life and death. You have to start in conjunction with that. What would drive a person to do this?
6: Right. That's the question number one. And, you know, you mentioned something earlier. It's very rare for a female to be accused of a crime this large. The obvious question would be why? I think people were captivated by these sexual undertones and they were very good looking. Did that ultimately, in your opinion, like over arch the story of this hideous crime?
1: I think that the word salacious comes to mind to a great degree. And back to what the earlier point that Kurt made about the inflammatory nature of the photos, when you submit these photos for evidence, you go to pretrial on these things and the lawyers banty back and forth about what's going to be admitted. Because, you know, how many photos of a gunshot one do you need to show? many photos of a stab wound do you need to show? To Kurt's point about this being a manslaughter event, you know, I think out of all of the the graphic, horrible images of Mr. Alexander's body, Travis's remains, I think the thing that stands out most were the, the nude photographs. Because, you know, when you think about nudity and another person is allowing that other person to take those photographs, you're in a very vulnerable position. And the fact that there's a size difference here. I mean, Travis Alexander was not some diminutive little guy. I mean, he's not a giant, but Jodi Arias is small. Now, she showed up prepared, I think, but I don't know that she was really about doing this. This was a heated event. It's like something happened in that gap of time that just set her off, man. And she just, you know, she couldn't take it anymore. When you talk about the brutality of the case, and she says it's
3: self-defense, is that possible based on how brutal this death was,
1: in your opinion? If she was attempting to imply that she was suffering from some kind of battered syndrome prior to, and that this was an interdictive measure on her part, she might could see that as self-defense. For me, you know, the things that I bore witness to just... With the autopsy report and and the imagery, this seemed as though she lay in wait for him.
6: I have two questions for Kirk. One, what do we all make of the fact that the camera was left in the washing machine? That always has been a shock.
7: It's one of those questions that goes along with what happened, and it's unanswerable. Logic dictates that it's most likely just inadvertent. You think about the disorganization of the crime scene and not cover one's tracks, one makes you think, you know, there's all this intelligence attributed to Miss Arias. So then, one, why does she even allow the photographs to be taken to begin with, right?
6: Just from a demeanor standpoint, I know we touched on this earlier too, and that it was, you know, nothing super notable, does that change in your experience throughout your time with Ms. Arias? You know, you describe it as being trapped with her.
7: You know, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that back in 2009, August of 2009, was, I was assigned to the case. At the end of 2010, I had done my second death penalty case. And this was a cold case. It was uh, DNA, no family, no mitigation, everything else, about as quick of a death penalty case as you can have. And it still took about three, three and a half months to try. I mean, empty courtroom, could have heard a pin drop, no mention on the news, the polar opposite of areas. But the point I'm making is by the time I got done with this case in late 2010, you know, I realized that death penalty work was not something I could stay in long term. So I thought, I'm gonna give this some thought. And if I wanna leave the public defender's office by the first of the year, I, I would do that. So in January of 2011, I decided to resign from the public defender's office. And what would be customary under those circumstances is for a new public defender to be assigned to the case and that I would just simply leave the case behind. I made the now um, almost fatal decision, considering what happened uh, down the road, that I owed it to my client to stay through an important hearing she had in February. So I decided I would stay on until this hearing in February, and then I would resign from the public defender's office. At that point in time, the judge took the uncustomary step of saying, well, have you filed a motion to withdraw, uh, I said, no. Uh, and she said, well, you know, she wanted to get me, asked me to keep it uh, as a contract case, which is something that some attorneys do when they leave, I declined. Um, I had a sense of where Miss Aries' case was going, but not to the degree that, you know, um Joe Scott Morgan and others would be talking about it on HLN and 1.3 million people would be watching I don't think anybody could have uh, envisioned that at some point in time at any point in time right that that it became the cultural phenomenon it did but um so you know it was done in this anticipation that I would leave the case behind and I uh, like I say wanted to move on at that point in time Miss Arias was assigned uh two attorneys to oppose my motion to withdraw. We went through about three months of litigation, and ultimately, after that three months of litigation was completed, the judge had ordered that I keep the case when I went into private practice.
4: It's
6: astounding to me. That is astounding. I don't think many people knew that at the time either. I think many people assumed that you were a paid defense lawyer for Jodi Arias.
7: Well, and that was one of the linchpins, I think, of the mob uh, against me at that point in time. Because you know, many theories were that you know I had taken this case to be famous, or you know, because I believed Miss Arias's story, or, or some other nefarious reason. You know, unfortunately, it was at a time when I couldn't say, "Hey, by the way." I'm actually trapped here. I don't want anything to do with this myth. An attorney can't go out and stand up and say, you know, I don't believe what this client is saying, but I have to project it in the courtroom based on my ethical responsibility to the client, to the court and and the entire death penalty process. So, yeah, I mean, that's why I named my book Trapped with Miss Arias, because I really was. You ask about demeanor, and there's a different demeanor there at that point in time, because when i was at the public defender's office it was a different setup there was a different kind of institution there were different kind of controls if you will and when i left and miss arias knew that the judge had ordered me to keep the case to her thinking i would assume as i kind of became her personal attorney and so i was supposed to be there at you know her beck and call so that was How the demeanor kind of changed from I was a public defender to maybe in her mind, her personal attorney, because the judge had ordered that I keep this case. And, you know, I'm not there to be my client's friend. I'm there to be an objective professional. So I'm looking at what can save my client's life. It didn't matter to me. I'm there to do my job.
6: And it's a life and death job. The stakes could not be any higher.
7: How do
3: you guys think that the public's view of Jody factored into her time on trial and following? I mean we're still talking about this case you know 10 years
1: later? I think the thing that really stood out to me, Kurt, was the access that the media had to her and it creates a real problem for you and it's a real handicap. Kudos to you because you said you had to do your job and but my lord, you know the the things that you had to overcome, just from a forensic standpoint, because, you know, it's almost like one man against the system. And then you got this boat anchor of a client, you know, that's unpredictable. And to me, it's, it's just amazing. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how that impacted you as a practitioner.
7: That's an understatement. And that's a, it's, I appreciate your words and this. It's kind of hard to react to because it's certainly something that, like I said, no one could have expected. The media had filed motions to cover the trial. And you know, we have objected to those in Maricopa County, the policies at the time, and the judge decided that it was okay for the cameras to be there. And one of the things that I often say to people is we don't always value things we think we'll never lose. And for me, on the day of opening statements, that was my anonymity. Because here I was, a public defender. So. I still remember like it was yesterday the day I parked my red Prius near the courthouse and started walking to the courthouse on the day of opening statements and I remember seeing four or five portable studios there that were set up and that had, you know, satellite dishes that looked like they could shoot lasers to Mars on them and cords all over the place and reporters on every street corner. It was literally all over the news, you know the death threats that came my way, the harassment. I mean, our email addresses had to be on every motion we filed. So my email address was public. So I could get up, do a cross-examination of someone and have 10 critiques from across the world. So it was that kind of state of hypervigilance when I was in public because everybody was watching, 1.3 million, what have you every single day and that only grew and grew and grew when you're going to court and you're having your car checked for bombs so those bombs don't take out the courthouse because people are so angry at you for defending this person
6: i can't imagine anything crazier and talk about being unprepared walking into it right now you are so prepared you have these tools would there be any advice for another attorney in your
7: situation. Have more success in the uh, in their motion to withdraw. <laughs> That's the best advice. But, you know, at the same time, Steph, there's not much you can do because we see a lot of these cases that are, are covered, but they probably don't catch the attention of the world the way Jody Arias did. I mean, there's no real advice. I mean, the only thing I found myself able to do is kind of a bunker mentality. I had a duty to the court. I had a duty to the Constitution. And fulfilling that duty meant you kind of put your head down and did your job.
6: And again, during that time, you really can't be taking on any new private clients because, again, your time is being committed
7: to this case. When Ms. Arias is awaiting sentencing after she's been found guilty, she goes down to the bottom of the courthouse and gives an interview with the local reporter because this is going to be her last opportunity the prison doesn't allow for interviews the arizona prisons don't allow for interviews the only reason i suspect we haven't heard from Miss area since um, she was sent to prison but she goes down the after the verdict and while she's awaiting sentencing and gives this interview with this reporter and basically says that it was my idea to call Travis Alexander abusive pedophile, the the the, the defense, of my creation, et cetera, et cetera, all about this, you know, Miss Arias never does anything wrong. We saw this during the trial, this kind of persona, and so she says this. And at the time, I've been threatened. My wife had quit her job because we have a unique last name, and I know. Somebody could easily find out where she was teaching. I mean, they found out where my co-counsel's kids went to grade school.
0: Oh Lord,
6: Is that right? That
7: is correct. There was a huge safety concern. Just going out in public was a scary event. But she says this and in my head at that point in time, when we're waiting for the jury to come back, we're doing the mitigation phase. This is something I can clear up two weeks later when I'm no longer her attorney. I can come on a show and say, that's not true. And ultimately, we know when the jury hung as it relates to sentencing, then there I am, right? The sounds of silence. I can't say anything. So this hatred that has been cast against me, I can't put any water on that fire simply because I was still her attorney. I had five and a half years of my life hijacked in service of Miss Arias's ends, whatever they might be. And ultimately, you know, when I got done with it and and dealt with the cancer that came out of it, I tried to run away from everything related to the case. And and I soon learned that I couldn't run fast enough. You just can't get away from it. So ultimately, after trying to run away, I realized that I had to uh, embrace it, if you will.
6: I've never heard such a tale in terms of being almost handcuffed to a person and having your career literally hijacked.
7: Yes, indeed.
2: Let's stop here for another break.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal
1: podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
5: Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.
3: I want to just ask both of your reactions to Jody's singing. It got a lot of publicity, her singing in the interrogation
1: room. She continued to sing when she was in jail. What do you both make of that behavior? It goes hand in hand with kind of the super bizarre nature of everything you know kind of intersected all kinds of bizarre stories were kind of bubbling up you know through the media and they would make their way to me and other people that there was some kind of secret religious cabal that had come in and executed travis alexander and that jody aries was completely totally innocent of this and she was set up and there were all kinds of things that were going on it's really kind of an interesting study because it was such a focal point in television history and legal history. It was like the theater of the absurd, you know, many times I would watch it and I I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And so I think for me, the singing thing is just super bizarre to me.
7: You know, bizarre is the word that, that comes to my mind. I'd certainly seen a lot of interrogation videos and never saw anything like that. And then, you know, as a lawyer, did it mean anything as it related to the case. And we have to keep in mind that this interrogation happened about a month later. It was bizarre and what have you, but for me, that was something to ultimately give to the psychologist that would make a diagnosis of Miss Arias because it really wasn't something of value to the case in general. But her case now is in the post-conviction release stage, which means that you know, she will soon be challenging my legal services and saying that I was ineffective as counsel because I didn't do X, Y, or Z, right? Which is one of the reasons why I think people are gonna see the case in a new light when they see why I did X, Y, and Z, because otherwise she got her conviction overturned and the family would have to go through that whole ordeal again. But, you know, even now, nine, 10 years later, There are her fans petitioning the court that they could be a part of this hearing somehow. And I think that's, you know, why we're still here today and why people are so fascinated by the case, because she does still enjoy kind of a a cult-like status, maybe like a a Scott Peterson enjoys as well following years later.
6: I know they like the attention and it's such a double-minded thing. Even as we talk about it, we are talking about somebody who maybe should be less spoken about. But at the same time, it's like, how do you prevent it from happening again? Or how do you spot that in the next one? And are there any other misconceptions just top of mind that you you know want to share? Anything else that we might not know about?
7: I think a lot of people you know, don't necessarily realize or connect to the reality that a lawyer arguing a case does not necessarily believe their client's story. I mean, the client ultimately is the one that drives the bus. And if a lawyer cannot disprove what a client is saying with actual evidence, then they have to present that story. Let the client testify to it and actually present that story because the lawyer is not the one who gets to decide what the defense is. and. Without going into some of the things, because her case is still pending post-conviction relief, that was something that weighed on me. And what a lot of people don't realize is that after the case was over, it was about four months later that I was diagnosed with stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancer, and I knew right away that the stress of representing Miss Arias for, you know, all those so many years, and particularly when we when we moved to the portion of it where my anonymity was taken away in January of 2013. that was the reason that cancer infested my life and that also became my motivation for writing the book which I think was an ethical response to her choice to go on there and lie and say that I was the one that created this defense and i wanted to do it in a way that would survive me should cancer take me away from this planet you know before i had a chance to really actualize all that and i made the decision at that point in time that i wasn't going to live my remaining years the way i had my prior so what had happened when the bar wanted to suspend me for four years and i think we had a case of it would have gone to a judge and I think we would have made a very good case that any suspension wasn't warranted. But I actually requested disbarment. Um, a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people just read the headlines, you know, and disbarred, right? I requested it because I knew that if I had that safety, you know, that chance to fall back, that I probably would still be practicing law, probably still not really living the life i wanted to live
6: how fascinating because yeah even just taking it back to the earlier part of the conversation where you said you wanted to get out of the death penalty business i could imagine i've never had to think of it that way how harrowing and heavy that must be to be in the business of life and death how is your health now most importantly
7: i've been blessed i I went into remission in 2016 and February of 2021, I was five years clean.
1: God bless you, man. We're super happy about that. That is fantastic.
7: And also for Kirk, I mean,
6: honestly, your story is really an extraordinary one to share in terms of your personal journey. And thankfully, I'm glad to hear that you are healthy as well. Where can we find the book and what can we expect from you next?
7: You can uh, go to kirknermy.com. That has a link to my Amazon author page, and you can see both my books about the Arius trial as well as my other books. You can catch me on Court TV, Law and Crime Network, what have you. I've got uh, my weight loss journey, my health journey, that show. So I'm anxious to share that with people because as a cancer survivor, it's it's always a blessing to me to be able to hopefully inspire cancer patients out there to realize that when they're going through that chemo chair, that it is temporary and, and life can get better on the other end.
2: In 2020, Jodi Arias's appeal for a new trial was denied. As of 2022, she was moved to a medium security prison in Arizona, where she will remain the rest of her life. Kirk Nermi is a former public defender turned legal expert and author. During his time in the courtroom, he defended hundreds of individuals against serious felony charges. Since leaving the public defender's office, Kirk has written eight books, including Trapped with Misarius. His books are available for purchase now. Joseph Scott Morgan has handled thousands of death investigations, including over 7,000 autopsies. Joseph also recently worked on the KT Studios documentary, Murdered and Missing in Montana, now streaming on Peacock. In addition, Joseph hosts his own podcast, Body Bags, which is available to download now. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. And listen to season three of our hit series, The Python Massacre. New episodes air every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at kt underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers.
0: more More info now.
2: Zumo Play.